Well, good morning, church. It is great to see you this morning. If this is your first time with us, as Brian said, my name is DJ. I'm the associate minister here at the summit. We are so glad that you are here. We're continuing in our Advent series that we've entitled Hope Has a Name. And as a reminder, what we are doing over these several weeks is we are doing a deep dive into one of the core pillars of Advent. We're looking at hope this year. And so I would encourage you, if today's your first time, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, to go back and listen to those last two messages, because what that's going to do is that's going to help you with this framework around hope that we have been building this season. But just as a reminder, this is our definition that we're working out of. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for God's plan for good in the future. A confident expectation and desire for God's plan for good in the future. This is hope the way that the Bible describes it. This is the way uh, that God has instructed it to use it. One of the phrases that I've found really helpful in understanding this concept is it's faith in future tense. It's faith in future tense. What it is is it's clinging to God, to the faithfulness of God, to the promises of God in a way that even though we can still look around and see so much darkness, so much pain, so much sorrow, we can have full assurance and confidence in the future that God has promised us. Hope is faith in future tense. And then last week, Brian uh, unpacked this even further, that this really begins to flourish within the context of community, that as we, as the body of Christ, as we cling to Christ... As we consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, and as we connect with each other within community, within the community of believers, within the church, that what happens is we get a taste of the future kingdom that lays ahead of us. That it begins to mature, it begins to grow within us our desires for God's plan for the future. And that it is able to sustain us in our current present day. And so this morning, we're going to continue to build on that framework. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Old Testament this morning, the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. You can also follow along at summitstl.info slash notes. But Zechariah 9 is where we're going to be today. And so before we dive in, let's pray. Awesome God, in this season of Advent, in this season of waiting and expecting of slowing down and reflecting, God, we ask that what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever thought about how you're wired? You ever thought about how you're wired? Think about maybe how many personality tests you've taken in your lifetime, how many letters have been assigned to your personality, how many numbers, right? Maybe colors. My, my brother-in-law, we were at, uh, at my wife's parents' house for Thanksgiving, and he uh, had just gotten this new job, and they sent him a bunch of these different assessments, and he's like, I'm yellow. I said, cool. 
I don't know what that means, but that's awesome, right? But have you ever thought about how you are wired? It's something that we talk about a lot. I'm sure at some point most of you in this room have taken a test or two to try to give you some insight. Maybe you've taken it for a job or maybe just out of your own curiosity. But there's a very real interest for a lot of us, for a lot of people, to try to figure out what makes us tick. How are we wired? And really what we're wanting to do is, what we want to try to do is understand the reason behind why we feel the way that we feel and why we respond the way that we respond in the everyday situations that we find ourselves Or we try and figure out why we don't feel things the way that we think we should feel them. Because people around us seem like they feel them to a degree to which we've never experienced. But here's something that I believe that probably all of us have in common. We probably don't think about our inner wiring that much until we feel like it's wrong. We, we probably don't take time to really reflect how we respond in situations or how we feel about certain situations until something doesn't feel right or until somebody tells us that something might be wrong, until we get into a conflict with someone, or until there's a big change that we're facing and it's keeping us up at night and we're just wondering, why is that? Why am I responding this way? And to go even deeper here because I think this really applies in this season of Advent. Some of you, this may be a frustrating time of year for you because it's a time where we talk about and we focus on things like joy and love and peace and hope and we sing about it. We do family devotions about it. We watch movies about it. All of these things and maybe you think Yeah, all of that sounds great, but I don't feel those. And maybe for some of you, you haven't felt those in quite a long time. And unfortunately, probably for most of us, we can look back at the course of our lives and we can point out more moments in our lives that we were hopeless than we were hopeful. And so I was thinking a lot about why is that? Why can I look back at times in my life where I felt like I was lacking in something more so than I can look back and focus on the times where I felt like I was experiencing something? And I think the the reason why goes back to how we are wired. And so what I want to focus on this morning as we continue talking about hope is focusing on this idea that God has wired us for hopefulness. God has wired us for hopefulness. How often do you think about your breathing? Probably not much until you can't, right? Yeah, we we don't sit around being like, okay, deep breath and out deep breath and out. But what we do think about is like, why can't I take a deep breath? Right? What what is happening within me that something is not working the way that it should? 
Well, I would argue that hope is the same way. The reason why we can recall very clearly moments that we are hopeless is because God has said, I've wired you for hope. And part of what I pray God is doing maybe for you in this season is that he wants to breathe that breath back into you. That he wants to satisfy that longing within the depths of your soul. Because I would argue our story, your story, is a hope story. Your saddest moments are hope moments. Your happiest moments are hope moments. You're always looking for hope. Sometimes you feel full of hope, and sometimes you feel like your hope has been destroyed or it's been lost. But because God has wired us for hope, what happens is we're always trying to attach that hope to something. The problem is often we look to fulfill it where it can't be found. We try to take a deep breath underwater. Let me give you an example. I'm going to tell you a parable about a man named DJ. It's a hypothetical name. It's not based on true events at all. He had four kids. Again, completely coincidental. <clears throat> I've known about myself that uh, where I try to find life-giving hope is in affirmation from my family. That's, that's where I really try to uh, have this, this uh, longing satisfied, is for my family to tell me that I'm awesome. So I love putting up Christmas lights on my house. It's a moment where I conquer my fear of heights. I do not like heights. I have a two-storied roof. For the first year, I only put lights on the first story, and Diana said, that looks dumb. <laughs> so the second year, I didn't put lights on my roof at all. And then the third year, she said, I think you can do it. And I said, all right. So for the last several years, I've put Christmas lights on both parts of my roof. I have to carry my ladder up the first roof. I have to put it on the garage to go over to the top roof, get on the top roof. It's easy getting up. It's getting down that's tricky. But so this year was the same. I climbed up on my roof. I basked in the glory of all my neighbors that drove by just in awe of my bravery to bring some much-needed lighted Christmas cheer to my family and friends. But I wanted to do it before my kids got off the bus because I wanted to surprise them. So I did. Got all the lights up, put all the stuff away, plugged it all in. It was just dark enough that you could just about see it. And I hear the bus pull up. And my kids start running up the street. My oldest son, Leland, he runs up. He's the first one. They always have this race of who can get to the mailbox first. Leland won that day. And he has this tendency. He calls me father, which kind of weirds me out, but that's, that's what he does. And so I'm standing there at the driveway. He gets to the mailbox. And he looks up, and he looks at me. He looks at the house, and he looks at me. He says, Father... Say, yes, my child. 
He says, our lights are boring. And I lose it. I say, what do you mean they're boring? Thinking that's a crazy thing to say. They are magical. Every light is clipped perfectly in place. It's vibrant, it's colorful, it's pleasing to the eye. And then he says this. He says, Chase's family has like 20 inflatables. How dare you? Inflatables is like the fruitcake of Christmas decorations. Now, I know I just offended a lot of you in here, but I stand by what I said. Now, to put all my cards on the table, we have two inflatables in our yard, but they're very classy, okay? But I couldn't believe it. You know, I tell that story, and it's silly, but it did bother me a little bit, right? It did bother me that when he got home, he wasn't as in awe as I wanted him to be, right? That it wasn't as magical as I wanted it to be. And I think what I'm learning in that is this, that in our quest to satisfy our wiring for hope, we tend to attach ourselves to hope that will never deliver what we're asking it to deliver. In that moment, hear this, I was wrong because I was expecting my seven-year-old to give me something that is not his to give. Zechariah 9 is a great example of this. A little background on what's happening in this book. God is speaking to a group of very fragile people. He's talking to people who in the last uh, 20 years have come out of captivity in Babylon, but they're not all out of captivity yet. And so there's a group of people who have been freed and they've gone back to their land and they're trying to put things back together, but they don't know what to do because they don't have a human king. Part of the narrative of the Old Testament has been Israel's just longing for a human king. And so they don't have one, they don't know what to do, and their confidence in this moment is at an all-time low. And what do we do in those moments? We start comparing ourselves to other people. And so in this moment... Fractured Israel is comparing themselves to other nations that seem to have it better off than they do. And it continues to drive them down to where when we get to them in the book of Zechariah, these are a group of people that seem like they're just holding on by a thread. And God's message through this prophet, is to try and restore their confidence, not in themselves. He's not trying to say, guys, you can do it. You can get it back together. You can be strong. He's trying to restore their confidence in him, in who he is. And I think that's a big part of when we talk about hope, when we talk about this life-giving, living hope that scripture teaches us, it's realizing that it's not found in you. 
It's not found in those around you. It's found in a God that exists outside of you. Who wants to impart his spirit into you to form you into a hopeful people. We've said this before from this stage, but it bears repeating. You are not the hero of Scripture. For a long time, that didn't make sense in my mind, right? I've heard countless sermons. I mean, David and Goliath is a great example. Go out and be David and defeat your Goliaths. You're not the hero of the story. God is always the hero of the story. God is the one to restore what we've lost. And so God keeps reminding them of his blessing and his provision and his protection and that he will restore their hope. I would encourage you, maybe this Advent season, just read chapter 9. Just read Zechariah chapter 9 and pull out all those moments that God is trying to redirect his people back to who he is. I'm going to pull out a couple of verses this morning, starting in verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. So part of this passage you've probably heard before, right? God promises to send a king who will usher in his kingdom. Verse 9 is a passage that we often quote on Palm Sunday or in the Easter season. But I want you to look closely this morning at those last couple of verses. God refocusing his attention onto his people. And I would argue that what's happening here is that he's reminding them of who he's created them to be. Of who he's wired them to be. That they are to be a people who experience a living hope. This is a somewhat new term. We sang about it just a little bit ago. But this term, living hope, what do I mean by that? Well, here's how I would define that. Living hope is our God-wired hope that has power to produce life change. Right? We can, we can talk about biblical hope, and we can talk about this, this confident expectation and desire for God's plan for good in the future, but inside of us, something has to change for us to truly grasp what hope is. That when you then couple it with this idea of something living and alive, that it's our God-wired hope that has power to produce a change within us. And so at its core, I believe that it reminds us of two extremely significant things. And the first thing is this, that we have been delivered. We have been delivered. God uses 
through Zechariah, this imagery of a, a waterless pit. And this is an image that would be very familiar to the Israelites. It's probably even an image that you have right now. It takes us back to Genesis, to chapter 37 in Genesis, to the story of Joseph. Joseph is thrown into a pit by his brothers. If you look, Genesis 37, 24, it says this, Joseph's brothers took him and they threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. But then as the story goes, the brothers see a more profitable opportunity before them, and they end up selling Joseph into slavery instead of just letting him die there in this pit. And so you fast forward the story, and you begin to see why God is trying to bring this narrative back into the minds of his people. Because what we see at the end of Joseph's story in Genesis 50, verse 20 Joseph says this to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Waterless pit is not pleasing. It's a deep, inescapable hole and the reason why we're told, both in Zechariah and back in Genesis, that it contains no water is because what do we all need to live? Water. And so it's this deep, inescapable hole that doesn't contain something that is vital to our life. It's something you cannot get out of. It's something that will lead to your death. Now, going back to Zechariah, most commentators agree that at this part, God is also speaking, or he's, he's primarily speaking even, to those group of Israelites that are still held captive in Babylon. Think about that for just a second. There's a group of Israelites that have been freed, and there's a group that are still stuck. And these people, still prisoners in Babylon, God wants to give them this message, this reminder, hey, even though your situation may not have changed yet, even though your location may not have changed yet, you have been delivered. You have been set free. Just like Joseph, your story is a hope story. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're still sitting in the bottom of a pit. And it feels like life is just hurling one thing after another after another at you. And it's broken you down and you're stressed and you're anxious and you're not sleeping and all of these different things. You're feeling the darkness of this world. And I believe what God wants you to hear, what God wants me to hear in those moments is God is saying, I see you. 
and I've delivered you. Again, it goes back to the story of Joseph. Joseph's life was full of triumphs and sufferings, triumphs and sufferings in prison, in the palace, right? All of these different things, these extremes. But the whole time, God is there saying, I see you. I'm with you. I've delivered you. Friends, here's what Living Hope says. It says that, yes, our situations change, our locations change, but our hope remains the same. That we have been delivered. We have been set free. What does God tell them? It's not because of what you've done. It's because of the blood of the covenant that I made with you. I was reminded actually this morning of Isaiah 58. There's this passage in Isaiah 58. It's not going to be on the screen, but, but I want you to just listen to this. It says this, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. When I look at that, you know what I don't see? I don't see God saying, I'm going to take you out of the scorched places and put you in the garden. What I see is God saying, I'm going to make you like a watered garden in the scorched places. Friends, that's living hope that reminds us we have been delivered even in the scorched place. Why? Because God is faithful. But how do we get there? I think that's where the second important aspect of living hope comes in. It's remembering that we've been invited. You, ever, you remember the last time you were invited to something? Maybe. Remember the last time you weren't invited to something? Probably. Invitation is a big deal, right? We don't really live in a world that like gives invites all the time. But my kids, as they're in school, they get super excited when somebody invites them to their birthday party, right? They come home, they put it up on the fridge, they count down the days, right? My daughter's getting invited to a birthday party next week. It's got a nacho bar. I'm like, are you kidding me? I want to go. But we love to be invited, it does something within us. It stirs something within us. It makes us feel like we're welcome. In Zechariah verse 12, it says this, return to your stronghold, prisoners of hope. It's kind of a weird phrase, right? I mean, we just talked about how we're prisoners set free, but you're saying we're prisoners of hope. What's that about? Remember what we said a living hope remembers that your situation, your location may not change, but something changes. Who's he talking to? He's talking to captives. And so when you think about it, this prisoners of hope language is actually a beautiful phrase that although they may be in chains, they're not in chains without hope. 
Church, for us, although we may suffer, we do not suffer void of hope. God is reminding them, you will be set free. And what he's doing is he's doing something internally within them. He's changing how they look at themselves. He's changing how they identify themselves. They are not prisoners of Babylon. They are prisoners of hope. That what begins to flow out of them is not the suffering. It's God. It's his hope. It's his character. It redefines us. I think there's a verse actually in 1 Peter that helps us understand this even more. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What I love about this and what I love about what Peter's doing here is that this isn't just a statement of what Christ did on the cross. What this is, is this is a summary of everything God has been doing since the fall. That from the fall of Genesis 3 to Jesus incarnate to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, this is what God has been working on of creating these people, born, uh, breathing new life into a people that were dead, giving them living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. To give us that which we cannot get for ourselves. But here's, here's the, the issue with all of that. When we hear things like God inviting us into his stronghold, we like to think that it's because our biggest, deepest problems in life are outside of that. Right? We, we like to think that uh, what the stronghold protects us from is from the things outside. We, we think of it in terms that we think of our own house, right? You lock your doors at night not because you're afraid of who lives there. Well, maybe, but usually not. Right? But you lock your doors at night not because you're afraid of the people that live inside, but because of what's outside, right? It's the same reason we don't have dangerous neighborhoods, what we have is dangerous people that do certain things in neighborhoods. We don't have bad marriages. We have messed up, broken people that are married together. So in a way, we have to change our thinking here that what God says is, hey, come into this stronghold, but come in knowing that the problem exists inside of you. It's an internal problem. And God's invitation into this living hope is not an invitation to come in and stick our heads in the sand and, and be protected from everything outside. God's invitation is way more active than that. It's come into my stronghold, sit under my charge, sit under my authority so that I can work inside of you. Because here's what we need to hear. For hope to be a living hope, it needed to fix what was broken. 
For us to be a people reborn into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, it must address the biggest, deepest, and darkest dilemma in our lives, and that's us. It's not problems of situation, problems of location, or problems of relationships. It's a problem of our heart. It's a problem that we don't have confident expectation or desire for what God desires in the future. And God says, come, sit in my stronghold, sit under my charge, and I will rewire your heart. I will fill you with my spirit that will do the work that really needs to be done. One of my favorite Advent authors is an author by the name of Fleming Rutledge, and she has this great quote. It says this, that Advent summons us to what Paul calls the hope against hope. It's the Christian hope that perseveres when human hope is at an end. Church, your story, my story, is a hope story. It's a living hope story. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've misplaced that hope. And you're looking to something or to someone to try to give you something that it was never meant to give you. You're looking for water in a waterless pit. And today my prayer is that you would allow the living hope of Christ and what he has done to breathe life back into you, to remind you that you have been delivered, you have been set free. Maybe you've been spending so much effort trying to get yourself out of the pit that you find yourselves in. Today I want you to hear that deliverance has been accomplished for you because of the resurrection of Jesus because of God's gift that came into the world, and because of the mission that was accomplished through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And for all of us, that we would accept the invitation of God to return to the stronghold, to sit in the presence of a good God, and to allow him to begin to work in us in such a way that it will begin to alter our focus, to make us see that there is light even when all else seems dark. Because we have hope. We have confident expectation and assurance of what God will do in the future. My friends, hope is never a situation. It's never a location. It's never an ideology. It's a living person whose name is Jesus. Let's pray. God and Father, this morning, God, we are reminded of just how good you are. God, that even in moments where we feel so overwhelmed, God, so exhausted, 
God, where we feel isolated and alone. God, that we are reminded because of your faithfulness, because of your unchanging nature, God, you are with us. You breathe life into us. You've rescued us. And you've invited us in. God, that we don't have a dead hope. But God, that we have a hope that came into this world, that breathed breath in a manger, and that breathed breath in a tomb. And God, so we, would we be the people that you've called us to be as we wait for your coming? God, that we are prisoners of hope because of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.